story all about how when life in high school goes up and down, it'll take 20 minutes to sit right there. We'll tell you some fun facts and education on self-care. with the counselors so it's been a little bit now since we had an episode but we have come back in full force and have a special guest to share with all of you today so hope you get excited (laughs) who do you think it's gonna be well if you know anything about chuckles because our guests can't keep their mouths closed you can hear them (laughs) (laughs) leaves little to the imagination so if you're walking down the halls of uni and hear the laughter then you might be able to figure out who it is so without further ado miss amy let's welcome our guest Lisa Maselli, come Hello. on down. I have my coffee in hand. I'm ready for the coffee talk. Only <laughs> one person's drinking coffee. My water. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for joining us again, Lisa. We know that you have been a special guest on our podcast before, and of course, you're always welcome. Thank you. I enjoyed it with before. Us. Yeah, and we just wanted to do another episode with you because, in general, we always have. A lot of different people asking us questions about college preparation and all things that you know about. (laughs) So we thought we'd have the expert in hand present and, you know, just get things firsthand from you again. So some of the questions and things we'll be talking about, we've already mentioned in the previous episode, but, you know, you can never have too much of Lisa. Like a refresher. Yeah. (laughs) So... Okay, well, I'm happy to be here. Bring it on. Yeah. Maybe you could just give us an update on how you've been doing. I've been okay. In the midst of finishing up with the seniors, and they've all been um, pretty good at reaching out and using their resources and signing up and doing walk-ins and getting ready to let the juniors know after my visit to U.S. history that they're on my minds, especially Mm -hmm. after their PSAT scores came back and your email went out to them. So they're eager to get started. So yeah, things are good. And we're all in the countdown for a a well-needed, well-deserved winter break. Mm-hmm. For sure. Winter break. <laughs> it's out there. It's coming. Um, yeah, so a lot of times students will ask how they can make their interests stand out or how they can look different than their peers. They go to the same classes, sometimes they're in the same club. So do you have any advice for students that are, you know, that could be for younger students, probably more so than older students, but... How do you think that they can stand out? I always like to explain to students, I even think about our beginning foundational talks in health class, right? We always say you're interesting, 
And I think so many times students don't think they're interesting, right? Or they think what they're doing is like, everyone else is doing it. So how is it gonna quote stand out, like you said? So I think first and foremost, if they can just, again, constantly revisit, which I know is hard, and maybe we can be the office that constantly challenges to do them, jab and do this, just revisit their why. If they're in an extracurricular or an activity, why? What do they hope to gain? Do they have a bucket list of maybe how they'd like to bring something new to that club or activity? I mean, college admissions will say there is rarely anything they read that is groundbreaking new because mm -hmm. they're young. <laughs> so they're applying from these lived experiences that are from this age group that very rarely is anything going to be earth shattering or groundbreaking for admissions to read. The question is, how do you describe your involvements in your voice in a way that brings out your purpose. So if you're in student council, right? Why? What do you hope to gain? What legacy would you like to leave? Is there an interesting and new activity that you'd like to try with the blessing of the student council? Is there a tradition that you want to put your interesting new twist to? So I think sometimes they just have to remember that what they're doing is interesting. And if they can just reconnect to the joy and the purpose of why they're doing it in the first place, that is going to resonate with an admissions office. Mm -hmm. And it kind of goes along with the conversations that we've had this year about purpose and meaning and how students don't just want to be doing things for the sake of doing them in this generation. They want to do something and contribute to society in a meaningful way. But since everybody is doing that, there's a high level of stress and fear of failure because you're competing with other people who are trying to stand out and be, you know, do something meaningfully as well. So I don't know, even just what you said, it kind of reminded me of that again. And when I think about what are they involved in and what are they doing, we have to also help them remember it's not always about the activity that's sanctioned or sponsored. So sometimes your interests can come across because you just want them to know you love baking or you've learned how to train your dog in new tricks or you love magic. It doesn't always have to be, what did you join? Who's your sponsor? What's your title, right? Um, where do you formally meet? I think colleges are trying to help them also understand that their interests and their uniqueness and the things that bring them joy can be things that they do completely on their own on the weekend. Or maybe they're the kid who, again, can't stay after school all the time and join sponsored activities. So their curiosities and their love of learning or their interest in art comes from something they completely designed on their own. So if they can just, again, kind of think about just how do you spend your time when you're not in class? And sometimes one of the things I love asking them the most is if you could design a day where no one has any expectations of you, what would that day look like? Sometimes if they're really honest, they can reconnect to some things that sometimes I think students may feel like this isn't impressive enough. And the reality is this isn't about impressing. This is about really just conveying to someone, what do you spend time on and why? What's the motivation behind those choices? And if you stick with something for a long time, what's your motivation to stay connected? Because life's about choices. Even this admissions journey they're gonna go through is all about choices. You know, what classes they take, who they ask for letters of rec, what they choose to join and why. So hopefully when they think about how do I become an interesting person for college admissions, start with, first of all, you are interested, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And take it from there and really kind of reflect on what you spend time doing and why. Yeah. 
And you've said those things before. And every time you say that, I do get excited because, you know, if I was a student, I would be like, wow, my interests, my passions and things, those things really matter. But I can also hear people saying that seems too good to be true. Are you saying that like, oh yeah, I can write about baking or, you know, things I like to design or create at home. Like those are equal to taking four different college level classes and taking, you know, five APs. So is there a balance in between there? So that's a, that's a question with a lot of layers because it also has to do with who might be the potential audience reading what you're going to convey down the road to someone. So it's kind of like if you think about if you're in fifth or sixth grade, right, and you're going to go to Jefferson Middle School, you're probably not sitting there worried about what your resume looks like for Jefferson. If you're a fifth or sixth grader thinking of applying to uni, you're probably thinking a little bit more intentionally of how am I going to be read by someone and am I impressing them? Which again is one of those things where, like you said, truly, you mean that if I bake, that's going to be more impressive or equally as impressive as Science Olympiad? Well, the question becomes know your audience, right? What is it that if you're sending something off, does that future pool of people reading you, are they transparent enough to let you know what they value? Because even when you pick where you're going to apply, and again, uni students have choices. If you're going to choose to apply to a school that admits 5% of their applicant pool, they have the right to raise the bar. They have the right to dig deeper into what you join, what you do, especially if you have a major. They absolutely have the right to say, okay, if you're applying to MIT and everyone is obsessed with STEM and has curiosities in science, how are you using your resources, but possibly even being that kid who is so curious that your high school bubble isn't the only thing that you search for. You kind of want to go deeper because you love it so much. And I think sometimes college admissions will often say, look, the reality is there are lots and lots of kids who do well in high school, but not all kids are naturally curious or avid readers or necessarily want to do things above and beyond. So the question becomes, because this is a process that is not a formula, those conversations, I think, that come to us sometimes regarding what should we be doing, those are hard to answer that way because that student may not even really be connected to those interests right now or may not be ready to go deeper in those things. So I think if you think that you're moving towards a direction, like, yes, I'm the kid who's probably going to go into engineering. Well, let's start with where you live. We are blessed to have a tier one research institution, an internationally ranked engineering program in our backyard. If you're going to apply to schools that are highly selective, the number one thing they're gonna ask or look for is, how do you take advantage of resources that are afforded to you? Are you that kid who's curious enough and eager enough to say, wait a minute, I may be doing well in math and science, but I may also want to try an engineering camp. Or maybe there's a talk going on and I'm so curious about physics, I wanna to go to a physics talk on Saturday. The number one thing to do is to think if you're developing or parents see their child developing these curiosities, just start with what's in your backyard. What's going on at U of I? What's going on at Parkland, right? How do you kind of know, are there ways that you can kind of go a little bit deeper beyond just the classwork? And I also think those curiosities can sometimes be seen 
and brought out from their regular interactions with teachers. Because if they're in class and a teacher sees that they're curious or they go up after class and ask questions or want to read an extra article or a teacher knows a connection on campus or has a colleague at Parkland, sometimes kids who do want to explore a little bit deeper beyond, okay, I have these grades in class, what does that mean? Just because you do well in math doesn't necessarily mean you're going to major in engineering. The question is, how do you kind of learn those things? And sometimes teachers can help them make those connections to really challenge them to go a little bit deeper to explore what their interests are in relation to what are some of the resources out there to maybe open up their repertoire of what they're trying to you know, kind of dip their toe into and take advantage of. Mm -hmm. So what about like um, students who feel like they don't have enough time to be, I feel like that's something we hear a lot too, like they don't have enough time to go deeper into stuff because they hear all day, then they go to like sports or something, and then they get home and have dinner and it's 7.30, right? And so if they wanna go deeper in an area that we don't necessarily offer, do you have suggestions on how they may fit that in or go about it? I'm, I'm pausing on this one because this is, again, everything is a choice. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they're gonna learn just like we learn as adults, everyone only has 24 hours in a day. So you can't necessarily, right? There are some kids who have an Energizer bunny battery in their back and can go and possibly even just push and push and do and do and other kids can't. And we all know that we worry so much about balance and sleep and are they doing things for the joy and for the intentionality of it or are they doing it because they think they're supposed to or because their friend is doing it. So I think, if the conversation turns into, but I don't have enough time, then no one can give you that gift of time, sadly. You almost are gonna to have to stop, evaluate everything you're doing. You guys have heard me talk about this for decades. Sometimes our kids outgrow things and things that they literally have in their schedule right now, they realize I'm growing into a new interest. I may have to let something go because it's mathematically impossible for them to keep so many things and be good at them and go deep and be committed because what we don't want are kids just joining things at a surface level. There's a time in your high school career, which is actually the sub freshman and sophomore years is just to try. But as you get older, you wanna make sure that you're getting a little more intentional and you're being a little more committed, whether it's growing into leadership roles, which is another conversation because I don't want them to think it's about the captain and the president. You don't need a title to be a leader, but Again, depending on where they choose to apply to school, one school may not read them as deeply and expect them to be so curious and go outside of their high school bubble, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and others will. Others will be like, okay, everybody that applies has great grades in these rigorous courses. Mm -hmm. So how are you showing us your intellectual, curios your intellectual curiosity or your depth of involvement? So you have to keep in mind, not everyone kind of will dig deep into a student's choices. It's, that's why sometimes when students will be like, oh, I'm so frustrated, I feel like I'm not doing enough and I think these colleges expect blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, then don't apply there. You made a choice to go into that pool. <laughs> so if you know that they are considered highly selective and you're already thinking that you're not worthy and you're second guessing if you've done enough for them, then the question is, why are you applying? If that's already what you're worried about, that they value so much, that you're already second guessing who you are and if you're enough for that school, I just want them to refocus and think, okay, 
There are 3,500 colleges out there. The most selective person in this process is the student. They have to build their list, right? So if they can really be more intentional as to why am I applying and do I understand what that school values and do those values align with me, then I think if they start realizing I only have 24 hours in the day and how do I want to spend it, they'll be able to make that choice and feel good about it and not feel as if I have to do these things and then all of a sudden feel like, but I can't fit it in. And then all of a sudden it's that panic cycle. What kind of tips do you have for like students who want to stop doing things, but their parents want them to continue doing things? And how would you encourage them to have that kind of conversation? Yeah, so I can tell you one thing that I love about this personalized journey that we help kids on is that parents are a part of this. Their partnership is critical. And I always use kind of the example with families is I'm like, I'm not, and I even said this in US history when I was with the juniors, I'm like, I'm not serving you well if I'm meeting with you alone and dreaming about schools in New York City and then I find out your family doesn't want you there. They're worried about safety or distance from home or cost. Um, so we have to make sure that we all understand what everyone values. So I think when it comes to even parents and thinking about what do their kids spend time doing, because oftentimes we know parents are the ones that often introduce students to opportunities, right? They may be the one who found the camp or read the flyer or heard about something going on. As the student gets older, I think with parents and partnership, they also have to be willing to kind of listen and give students the space um, and the choice. So for instance, sometimes a parent just being able to say, okay, so I'm hearing that you don't want to do this anymore. Even if they just own the emotion and say, we're a little bit kind of surprised and a little sad because we think you're amazing at this, but we also know that you might be growing into other things. Why don't you give it a couple months, put some time into it and we'll let you make the choice. But, you know, teaching kids that if they are in something, they have a commitment. How long do they have to kind of abide to that commitment, but also having them realize that there is a possible exit plan so that they have some voice and agency in this. Otherwise, they're going to feel trapped in things, which is, again, what we don't want. We don't want kids doing things and then feeling resentful about it, especially when kids sometimes feel like I have to finish this because I'm thinking that is what good kids do, <laughs> right? I don't want to disappoint anybody. It doesn't really bring me joy anymore. I wish I could have done X, Y, and Z. If they stick with things just because they think they should, then again, I know this is like a broad stroke here, but if they don't get in then where they want to go, they feel like, oh, why did I do those things? None of that brought me joy. I could have been doing X, Y, and Z, and I did all this for college admissions, and it didn't even pay off in the end. And then they're resentful, and then they're sad, and then they're mad, and then they feel like high school was like they were robbed of experiences. Mm -hmm. So it's a delicate balance that parents need to realize and students, right? There's no check boxes, no formula. You better do this, this, and this, and this, and this. This is like the roadmap for you. Mm -hmm. And I know that can be frustrating to parents, but I know you guys do amazing outreach to parents and say, I'm here for you, younger families, come talk with us, right? Most of the time you're gonna be pushing back and saying, but what does the student want? Mm -hmm. What brings them joy? What are things they're curious about? Have they talked with their teachers? It's just so much of a, a conversation to have kids realize that they do have choice in this. A lot of this is about making choices and feeling good about them. 
I'm going to bring up a question about APs and concurrent enrollment, just because it's a very common question that parents have whenever I meet with them, <clears throat> just about if APs are necessary and if concurrent enrollment looks better to colleges. And I was wondering if you could like do any myth busters or <laughs> clarifications yeah. on those two things specifically, just because we have so many questions about them and maybe just your thoughts in general. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the University of Illinois courses, again, being a part of the U of I, the fact is we do have a very big privilege of being a student here is that if you qualify and show interest and executive teachers can kind of sign off on guidance that this is a class that you're requesting and it you know fits within the U of I um, policy of letting a high school kid take that course because they are non-degree seeking students so the college kids get priority, then you have an amazing world open to you because you can take classes on campus, right? No charge if you do them in fall and spring. Um, and you're starting college courses officially. I mean, they're not dual enrollment. You don't get them on your uni transcript. You don't get them in your GPA at uni high. You're starting a permanent transcript and it's important that kids know it's permanent. Meaning that if you sign up and all of a sudden it starts getting hard and then you think, well, I'm just gonna stop going. You can't do that, right? And it's a communication system between the university and the students directly because they're the student that is taking the course. So I'm saying all of this because there is a lot to do with, is the student ready for all of this independence? Are they ready to navigate a college course where they're sitting in a class with 95% with of the college kids there probably having the freedom to not wake up till noon, do their projects at one in the morning while they're ordering pizza together. And they're the high school kid now trying to live that life while they're also trying to do our bell schedule and our extracurricular life. So hard decisions have to be made regarding readiness, regarding maturity, regarding purpose. Because if you think you have to do these and all of those other layers of this puzzle sound like my child or the student even says, I don't think I want to navigate that world at my age so young, then don't do it. Because there is absolutely no expectation that a college sees where we're located, sees concurrent enrollment as an option, and then dings a student if they don't do it. That it was 100% not the case. Concurrent enrollment is in place because you are that kid where you're so interested and curious about something and uni high's limitation for courses limits you. That then even maybe a teacher or a counselor says, well, wait a minute, you love this so much. Let's see what's on campus. Because you realize that even when they're signing up for next year's courses, you may see maybe a little bit of light being, you know, extinguished in their eyes because our curriculum guide doesn't meet all their needs. That's what I love about U of I. It's not about, is this going to, again, look better or impress more? Um, so I think that students really have to realize this is why the policy is you can't take courses at U of I that we teach. It's meant to be that you literally have looked at our curriculum guide and you want to take those courses, right? Uh, I'm sorry, you've looked at our curriculum guide and the U of I offers you things that uni high can't offer you. That's why you're taking them. Now, so, AP exams though, we're not an AP school. So the fact is you have to self-study, you have to go into those knowing that our curriculum is not driven towards that exam. We're not purchasing the curriculum from the AP, from the college board. Um, 
but they own the tests, they own the scores. So if they do sit for those and they don't do well, and exams are scored on a one to five point scale, they really don't have to send them anywhere. If you take a U of I course, you have to, that record's permanent. I mean, you have to disclose your college courses to every college you apply to. When you graduate and you matriculate to your college, you have to send that college transcript. APs are kind of a safer kind of investment. If you think you wanna try it and you don't do well, or you feel like, what did I do? I got in over my head. You own those scores and they don't go anywhere. And there is not one college in the country that would expect a uni applicant to have APs because we are a non-AP school. Did that help distinguish between the two? Mm -hmm. What would you say would be the benefits of taking AP courses? So we, we talk a lot um, with uni alums. Um, I think a strength of our office is the return of uni alums to come back and talk with us and share their stories. And I learned so much of them about what could we have done differently or do they wish they would have known something different to help them navigate this journey? And one of the things that um, uni students will often share is, um, even if they knew that they weren't worried about admissions, non-APs on their record didn't matter. When they got to college, depending on where they went, sometimes they'd be with their two or three roommates, right, in their triple or quad, and realize, why am I the only one going to these 100 level survey courses? All of my friends are, got out of those because they were at AP schools. And sometimes, depending on the college, the 100 levels can be the hardest courses, right? They could be huge and impersonal and sometimes those weed out courses. So sometimes a uni student will feel like, well, if I would have maybe tried some APs, I mean, I'm good at test taking. I know that I'm independent. I could have studied for these. Could I have eased up my life, gotten out of some of these 100 levels that might be even more kind of gunner courses, you know, trying to study all the time and maybe midterm and finals, but you could also be at a liberal arts college that is small with 1,200 kids, and they may not even want APs. Their philosophy may be, no, we don't allow you to place out of a 100-level course. You have to meet the professors and go through our curriculum from start to finish. So the hard part is, is they're making their choices on AP involvement without knowing where they're applying or going to college. So oftentimes, the phrase we use is, if you are that kid who says, I'm willing to invest and try these, Best case scenario, it's an insurance policy. You do well, you've got that score in your back pocket. You can pull them out whenever you need to. If a college takes a grade, if they don't, don't. You can save significant tuition dollars from those. But I also want families to realize in lieu of APs, most campuses have what they call placement exams, where you can also walk into an office and say, hey, I think I do pretty well in this area. Do you have a, a placement exam I can study for? And sometimes you just walk in and take a free one hour, 90 minute exam on campus and they place you out. So again, what's the motivation? Very rarely do we have uni kids who want to graduate before four years. It's not that they wanna finish college early. Oftentimes they just wanna ease up their life that instead of maybe taking 18 credit hours, they take 13 or maybe they double major more easily or they have time to do things in leadership because they don't have to take as many classes of AP credits kind of help them on that route. So it's a hard decision to make, but you have to know at uni, you're not being prepared for those. The math department over-prepares. Oftentimes I think they feel like they want kids to not be afraid to take the calculus exam. Um, but overall, I would say we're not a school where people are pushing that our curriculum means you should be taking it because the AP curriculum is very controversial. It's very heavy. 
I mean, I had family members who went to public, other public comprehensive high schools in the state, and they were starting their AP studies in the summertime before their senior year even started. That's how much content you have to go through. So I think families should appreciate the fact that we're at a non-AP school because no one expects that of them, but it's there if they are interested based on um, the ability for any student to take an AP exam. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about letters of recommendation and like, what does that mean? How do you develop relationships with faculty or teachers here at uni? And like over time too, like how does that look different for a ninth grader versus an 11th grader? And mm -hmm. um, is it just this, the classes that you get A's in, the ones that you should ask for letters of recommendation or is it deeper than that? Definitely deeper than that because sometimes and even colleges will say, sometimes the letters that kind of bring a student to life can often be, you know, talking about a kid who comes to office hours more or is using resources or isn't afraid to talk with the teacher and you know, say, hey, I need your help. So sometimes, and I, I think about too, in the past, we've had some panels of uni faculty who I've brought together to kind of talk with our upperclassmen about what it means to kind of partner with them and nurture a relationship and you know, what do letters of recommendation serve and why is it so important to have anecdotal details and stories that kind of go into those letters. It's not just about this kid took this class, they had this grade, here is what I teach, right? It's not that. It's so much more about how do they evidence um, collaboration in class? Um, or again, do they approach projects with a creative side to them? Or are they the kid who can ask for help or they help appear if they see them struggling? Or again, right, a teacher's talking about something and maybe they're the kid who says, I'm really interested about that. Do you have anything else I can read on that topic? Um, and I do think again, right, there is no formula to this. You don't have to be the most outgoing kid and the kid who walks up and goes to office hours every day to have a relationship with teachers. Um, our English department and history department specifically have always said to students, we know you better than you think we do because especially if there's a lot of writing in our curriculum, we get to know you through blogs and journal posts and how you convey yourself on paper. A lot of them are conveying the critical thinking skills you have, right? Um, but I do think students need to realize that, you know, teacher recommendations are a partnership too. We even give them a tool where they're expected to self-reflect on why am I asking you for a letter of rec? How have I made the class different? What are some of my high moments that I'm proud of in class and what were areas that maybe I was struggling a little bit or I'm proud of myself for reaching out to you? We always use the iceberg analogy especially in our health class about how, you know, an iceberg can be seen easily above the water, but what's below the waterline. That's the same with teachers and students, right? Students have the responsibility of showing a teacher who they are below the waterline. A teacher may see them having the grade and turning things in and being a very, you know, good, um, you know, student who, you know, just basically is compliant and does everything they want, great. The question is, they may not know that that student has made sacrifices or has worked with peers on help or has a parent staying up at night helping them on problem sets or writing a paper, right? So if the student is willing to say, I'm in your class, but I'm gonna go a little below my waterline too and let you know these are the layers to how I've navigated your class. 
And even if you have the A, the B, the C, whatever the grade is, right? Just help the teacher understand the journey it took for you to get there. Because oftentimes, even though as small as we are, um, that below the waterline exercise, again, requires vulnerability. And I will often say to students, right? Sometimes a powerful letter of rec is for a teacher who says, this kid almost dropped my class and they kept it. And look at what they've accomplished. And now they're signing up for my second elective. Like how cool is that story? And those bring letters of rec to life for kids. Mm -hmm. So it's not about the letter grade earned. It's not about being the most outgoing kid in class. Right. And sometimes I think even students will sometimes already already project, does this teacher quote unquote like me? Right. I mean, again, in high school, that's a really delicate thing to talk about too. You have to help students realize, and sometimes even parents will be like, What? I go to parent teacher conferences and these teachers are like, Oh my God, I would write a letter for your child in a heartbeat. And the student is sitting there wanting to shrink in their skin that they can't believe it. But I do feel like I put a lot of onus on the student and I listen to them because oftentimes they know those relationships best. Mm -hmm. um, so even if a parent is thinking, oh, ask this teacher, you could see the student going, oh my gosh, I don't wanna ask that teacher, right? There's no, again, formula about this. Um, I do think with test optional and with COVID and with restrictions and classes, colleges have been a lot more liberal on what is the grade level the letter has to come from. So in the past, letters of rec were always junior, senior teachers, the recency effect, right? Who had you at your most mature level. I think about our kids, right? Who were locked down for a, a year and a half. They were going back to sophomore teachers. Some people said, can I have my freshman year teacher write? Because I had them for a full year. And the colleges said, absolutely. Whoever has the ability to talk about you firsthand with anecdotal evidence and details is what we're looking for. And I think that trend is going to continue because relationships just don't end. And should they be looking for a certain kind of teachers? And like, what about the outside mm. people? Um, so traditionally, they want letters from what they call the core departments. So if they want letters of rec, it can be one to two academic teachers. And those are usually English, math, science, social studies, foreign language. And then they have what they call at some schools an opportunity to submit supplemental letters. So a supplement could come from a fine arts teacher. It could come from um, a coach. It could come from an employer. It could come from a, um, someone that might be supervising you in some uh, other outside activity. We've had um, students have letters of rec from like their private dance teacher. Um, so yes, traditionally what they get is two academic letters from departments, opportunities if the college is willing to take what they call supplements. And then we have an opportunity as a student services office in partnership with administration to then also make sure that we give the big broad context of the student being coming to uni, how did they move through the curriculum, were there any barriers, any special circumstances, right, things like that. Okay, so one of the things that parents often ask, and Lisa, you've been here for decades. How many years have you been here now? Almost 30. 30 years. So you are the resident expert of where students have gone to school after uni and probably see different trends throughout the years. So where would you say you see a lot of uni alums going to school? Like what college are they going to? And also in light of that, how do they know 
what would be a good fit for them because I think when they're younger they just think of you know the name universities or the very competitive universities but you are a wealth of information in terms of knowing so many different colleges that might be a better fit for them according to their interests and you know their personalities um how would you give guidance on that yeah the easy and i think the um I don't want to say this derogative, but the lazy way to build a college list is just taking rankings list, right? Because sometimes that definition of what is a good school is almost determined by what's ranked the highest, right? Which often means a name recognition, or it means, you know, for lack of a better term, kids will often call them the bragging rights schools. So in a sense, what you have to be careful about is if you're really trying to approach this in the right way and think this is about where the student or my child will grow, where they will feel celebrated, where if there's awesome resources and things on campus that they wanna take advantage of, they'll feel safe and comfortable accessing those resources. There's no point in going to a place where you don't even feel comfortable or you feel again, like you've got imposter syndrome the whole time, or you're trying to keep your head above water, right? So the reality is you have to think about so many things that make you a whole person. I think about your wellness wheel, that you guys talk about in health class all the time. And it's like, they're trying to think, where do I fit with the academic experiences that I want, the academic interests, first and foremost, they're going for a degree. So sometimes it is, what is where are schools that are strong in these majors? Um, sometimes they're undeclared and they just wanna know where can I be at a place that will help me grow into what I wanna study that's gonna give me opportunities and not limit me. So oftentimes that concept of fit is about thinking of everything from the location, the size, the access to professors, the micro communities that they might be surrounded by. Um, I mean, kids who basically have seasonal affective disorder will often be like, I don't know if I wanna be in Portland, right? I don't know if I wanna be in Seattle, is it too rainy, is it too? So again, you have to think about those things and visit. Um, some kids that doesn't bother them at all. So I think when it comes to fit, a rankings list is never going to tell you all of those things, right? Do I need to have um, a large Jewish population? Do I need to be able to have um, a certain division of sports I want to be a part of? Am I the kid who needs to go to museums all the time? Or am I also okay listening to independent bands? And what about the food choices? I mean, we have kids who literally will say, I just can't go somewhere that maybe just has a subway and a waffle house and small place. I need a place with a vibrant food scene. All of that can make or break how you wake up and live your day. So I think students need to realize, and parents too, you know, sometimes the, we will challenge a student just to say, okay, if you have schools on your list, give us your why, <laughs> give us your purpose. Why are you applying there? Because oftentimes they don't really know. They think more of the name and they think more of the prestige and the rank. And they think, well, of course that's a good school. But if you really say, what will you join? How will you wake up in the morning and take advantage of things? What is it about the chemistry at that school versus the chemistry department at another school? That takes intentionality. That takes deliberate research and making sure that you understand how schools are different. So this is why sometimes applying to less schools means you're a better applicant. When you overapply, you don't have time to do this intentional research. When you are thinking about your fit, you have to go down the rabbit hole deeply on every college. With that said, to answer your question about where do uni kids go, I mean, really everywhere. I think number one, we've had on average maybe 25, 30 kids per grade stay at U of I. 
And for a majority of those kids, it's not that they applied to one school and said, hey, can I get in there? I'm just going to do one. They still did the, they did the, the deliberate research, excuse me, because I'm eating my mask. <laughs> they did the deliberate research and then chose you guy, whether it was because of, oh my gosh, why did I think I needed to leave here? And has everything I want. And if by chance the parents get a half tuition waiver or they realize, wait a minute, what I've realized in the pandemic is I don't want to be away from my baby sister. Or my grandparents moved in with us. I'd like to kind of be and see them more often. So, so much of this is about at their age, keeping an open mind, exploring a variety of schools that maybe they and their parents haven't even heard of before. But to also realize that it is hard. They're making choices right now. And they still, I always say this to parents, their frontal lobes aren't even fully developed yet. And they're supposed to start thinking about where I want to live for the next four years. So the more that they can just kind of realize that this fit concept is really important because it's not about getting into a college, it's about graduating, right? You have to grow and thrive and stay. And then other, aside from the University of Illinois, I'd say kind of our biggest applicant pool tends to also go to schools like WashU, um, Northwestern, University of Chicago, some of the liberal arts colleges that are in a driving distance from us, like Grinnell and Knox and McAllister and Oberlin, um, because sometimes distance from home will mean what radius can I do? Otherwise, we have kids that look all over, not only the country, but the world. We have Canadian school applications. We have applications overseas to schools in England and Ireland and Scotland. Um, and we also have kids that explore gap years. So, and we have kids that say, I want to start at Parkland. I want to do Parkland Pathways. I know that I can get these great foundational classes and be intimate in smaller classes and extracurriculars and know my professors. And I know that I can start at Parkland and go anywhere I want to with proper advising and being committed to my work there. Um, and then we have kids who will sometimes opt to not apply to college and say, I may do it in a year or two when I feel like I do know more of who I am. So we're always trying to help students realize there isn't some treadmill you're on, where everyone is doing the same speed, going in the same direction, just help even families realize that this place, um, again, we're preparing you for your life after uni, but everyone's not going to have the same, the same path they go on. Mm -hmm. Before we wrap up, I thought of one more question. Mm -hmm. Before you were talking about schools going test optional, and we know that after the pandemic or in the beginning of the pandemic, schools began to be more open to that. And you had said before that this could be a lasting trend. But especially for students who are freshmen and sophomores, you know, going into junior year where they must start thinking about taking their SAT and ACT. Do you have any updates in terms of schools and test the test optional option? Sure. Um, I think it's still going to be on a year-by-year -year basis. There are some schools who have been very eager to just announce we are going test optional for three or four years, because how are we really going to have data to decide if we did the right thing unless we have longitudinal data? So they weren't just doing it on a year-by-year -year basis. Other schools are. They're doing it year-by-year. -year. Um, I've also learned from talking with all of my amazing colleagues in this profession and people on the college side who even though they may have a belief system regarding testing, it's not made just in their office. Sometimes you've got legislators involved and state mandates. And if a state has a scholarship, 
that was written into the code for that state that a test was required. They're having barriers to dropping testing. So it's a lot more political than most people realize. And there's a lot more constituents involved regarding making long-term decisions. But I do think colleges have seen that they were able to admit a vibrant group of kids without a test score. And I think when they have that, and even faculty can say, I haven't seen a difference between the kids in our classes, it'll be very hard for them to go back. So I do think most people are hoping that there's a slow death to ACT and SAT. That again, instead of a student feeling stressed, and you talked, Christy, about time commitment and how sometimes they feel like they're so busy. Well, imagine eliminating all those worries about test prep and how many times do I take it and do I take both and you know what schools need them or whatever. I do think people are hoping that it will just completely be gone. Um, but even prior to the pandemic, there were already almost a thousand schools that were de-emphasizing testing, which had nothing to do with the pandemic. They just realized from their holistic admissions review, the scores weren't making the decision. Mm -hmm. So the pandemic, I think, liberated colleges who desperately wanted to go that way and were always told no. Okay, now we all have to do it. Now let's track the data and see what we want to do. But I do think the younger classes are just going to have to wait. I think the best thing to do is for us to kind of share with them a typical testing timeline, um, engaging them in all of our state mandated testing and practice exams so that they have some data points. But with them also realizing this is just being proactive because they may have scores and never have to use them. Who knows? It all depends on where they apply. And if it is test optional, how they feel about a score and giving them that choice of deciding what to do with it. Well, thanks for joining us today, Lisa. You're always a wealth of information and uh, you have so much passion and joy whenever you're talking about it, which is awesome. Uh, so to wrap up for today, uh, I don't know if you've heard the Brene Brown podcast or not, and I can't really do it justice. So Brene, if you're out there listening, <laughs> give me some grace here as we get into this last section. Um, but she wraps up her podcast with asking her guests like 10 questions or something, which I don't know that I can come up with 10 questions off the top of my head, but I can come up with a few. Okay. So um, like one of the questions she always asks is what's something on your, and you're not supposed to like you're not supposed to put too much thought into it. You're just supposed to be like, boom, this is what the answer is. Mm -hmm. So what's something on your nightstand? Earplugs. <laughs> <laughs> what's the last show you binge watched? Um, Ozark. <laughs> you don't like going to depth. <laughs> Sometimes people are very short. So they're going to depth I'm like, like I'm um, show. <laughs> what's your favorite pastime? Photography. I didn't know that about you. Oh. Uh, where's your favorite place to visit in Champaign-Urbana? Oh, Meadowbrook Park. That was not endorsed. Was <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite drink? Oh, geez. Coffee. I mean, coffee, coffee, coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is very true. Every time we see Lisa, she has uh, coffee and tan. So. Um, that's five. Amy, do you have any questions you want to shoot off here? What's your go-to meal to cook? Um, on a budget or off a budget? <laughs> if it's, if it's um, easy, off the budget, and it's not that much going to break the bank, tacos. Mm. If it's, let's really make something and go and invest in this meal, it's filet mignon. Oh, <laughs> yum. With the asparagus and the 
you know, potatoes and all that. Mm -hmm. It's pretty gourmet stuff. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite restaurant in town? Oh, geez. If I say this now, my husband will probably just keep taking me there over and over again. So I've got to be careful. Cofusion is usually the place I think of first because it's so eclectic on its menu. Because um, I still know I can go there and get anything and I love it all. Mm. I don't know. What's your favorite thing to do at uni? Oh, honestly, just hear that. I, I, if I'm in my office and I hear laughter in the halls or I hear kids just talking and having fun, I just love to peek my head out and just see it in action because they bring me so much joy. Mm -hmm. So the energy in the hallways is like infectious to me. Mm -hmm. What would you like to be doing on a Sunday afternoon? <sighs> honestly, somewhere with palm trees and a beach. <laughs> when I'm looking at or seeing like on the water, I mean, Pontian dreams. Yes, I was going to say, I'll tell the <laughs> listeners, um, Christy introduced me to pontooning and now I just want to be on a pontoon boat. <laughs> Anytime it's warm out, I just want to be on there, the motion and the water and the diamonds that are glistening. It's just like magical to me. So my husband wants to donate to the SSO pontoon fund. Oh, yes. A hand printed you pontoon. Can call 180. <laughs> <laughs> and your last words for this podcast just breathe, be, and be joyful. Well, thank you so much again for joining us, Lisa. We always love when you're on, and I'm sure all our listeners appreciate you just as much as well so thank you thanks for the invite until next time see you bye, bye. <laughs>